You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to On Watch, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we do a deep dive on all sorts of interesting investigative items that Judicial Watch is looking into. We take a deeper dive, a longer look at uh, various news items and investigative uh, case files that we have open, and we try to pay attention and, and drill down and have some interesting commentary on stuff that normally is just a headline or a soundbite or a quick little two-minute report uh, on other news formats. Judicial Watch has this exciting podcast for you that we're developing and growing week by week. And this week we decided to uh, do a little discussion, even, I guess, to give you an inside peek as to how Judicial Watch works and the kind of investigations that we do and the of course, the litigation that we conduct also uh, into really trying to expose government corruption, get facts out to the American public. And so this week, we have the great privilege of having Judicial Watch Senior Investigator Chris Nelson join me for our chat. Chris, welcome to On Watch. Oh, thank you, Chris. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. We can confuse each other by referring to each other as Chris over and over again, and uh, people won't know who's talking. Although uh, you usually sound a lot more intelligent than I do. So, um, you know, a topic that we just can't get away from, and, and in particular here in Washington, D.C., has to do with the, the never-ending COVID-19 pandemic. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the District of Columbia issue an order. The mayor of D.C., uh, Muriel Bowser, put out an edict that forbids people from entering any kind of uh, restaurant or public place without showing a COVID passport, a vaccination passport. And uh, that's, that's been issued in the context of uh, the United Kingdom just a couple of days ago, uh, going in the, in the total opposite direction and throwing out all COVID rules and regulations and passports uh, Chris, you have a knowledge and background. You've been investigating this now for some time. Let me get uh, let me get some of your ideas on on what's been going on in, in the world of the COVID nineteen pandemic and government regulation. Well, Chris, you know we have uh, all these vaccines out there from uh, Pfizer, uh, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, uh, other vaccines that have been approved uh, overseas. But uh, I think, as you and I have discussed. Uh, before uh, in private, uh, these vaccines uh, aren't that effective at some of the variants that are coming up as we continue to see in the news. As we see now, we've had uh, another spike uh, with a new variant that's up. Uh, as you mentioned, we have this new, uh, I guess, uh, order from the D.C. mayor concerning Washington, D.C., and you got to have a vaccine to go into different places. And, you know, as I talk to people out there, uh, a lot of these places aren't enforcing that. I talked to someone yesterday who told me that uh, they've been into restaurants, they've been in the nightclubs at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, there's no, no one's checking uh, vaccine cards. Uh, they get out on the dance floor. Uh, shoulder to shoulder, no one's wearing masks. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure if this is just a uh, political statement or uh, if there's any intent to actually enforce it or not. Yeah, I think a lot of it really has to do with political control and intimidation of the population. 
I don't think it's any mistake that this order was issued just a couple of days, or I guess four, four or five days, before uh, the March for Life, which normally is a huge uh, event here in D.C. with hundreds of thousands of people uh, marching uh, in, in protest to the Roe v. Wade decision, pro-life marchers who support life and oppose abortion. Uh, there's usually a huge turnout here in D.C. Uh, obviously, all these people coming into the Dis District of Columbia would like to do things like uh, go into a store or purchase lunch or dinner after the march. Or This is an attempt, I think, really to suppress turnout. That's my opinion. And then secondly, uh, on the weekend or a couple of days after the March for Life, there's supposed to be another protest rally uh, against all these vaccine mandates, the Biden administration's uh, uh, mandates on vaccines that have suffered, obviously, in courts. They've lost a few times now. But again, large crowds, people against the vaccine mandates. And here's the District of Columbia uh, trying to uh, really, I think, suppress turnout because people don't want to come into the city where it's clear that they're not welcome. And, uh, you know, in all of this vaccine talk and all the sort of the scare tactics and the efforts to uh, to control and mandate and, uh, and you know, the ever-changing requirement even for the definition of full, fully vaccinated. One thing that's not discussed very much, and I'd like to have your opinion on it, is uh, what happened to natural immunity? How, how does that factor in all the discussions for mandates? I think that's a good question. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of talk about herd community or herd immunity and, uh, and the news media and everything. Uh, you know, I myself have had COVID and uh, I feel that, you know, as, as having COVID, that's probably the best uh, thing that will protect me from, uh, you know, from getting COVID again, uh, despite all the vaccinations and everything that, that's out there. You know, from what I read, that's, that's one of the, uh, the best things that will give you the antibodies and what your immune system needs to protect you from, you know, getting the the uh, coronavirus again. So. And I agree with you. I think that uh, natural immunity has uh, benefits and there's been multiple studies showing that, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to vaccine. I mean, one of the things I think that's done to try to manipulate the public and in, impose and invoke a lot of fear is by trying to brand people as being anti-vaxxers, as though they're trying to deny reality. It's, it, it, they're equating them with being, you know, flat earthers, right? People that deny science or deny reality in some way. And I, I think it's, you really couldn't be further from the truth in that regard. It's just that there are people that have, I think, legitimate questions and they, they look at the, the science, they look at the studies, they look at the different uh, it, it, studies or incidents around the world, whether it's Israeli studies or Dutch studies, uh, and they look at the science of it and they say, wait a minute, it's, maybe it's not so crystal clear. Maybe it's not so absolutely black and white. And so there's people that ask questions about vaccine eff efficacy or about the way in which the government has handled vaccines, which is another question altogether. Uh, and, you know, even for asking questions, people are labeled and they're, they're attacked. And that to me is very dangerous. You're allowed to ask questions. You're allowed to uh, pose, uh, you know, unpleasant, awkward issues and, and examine stuff and not be declared, you know, uh, a Neanderthal or somebody who's trying to, to trying to deny reality. Um, 
here's you know I'll give you an example and I'll, I'll, I'll ask for your feedback so um, you know I've heard people say well you know I've been vaccinated and I had my booster but they still got COVID and so this is obviously referred to sometimes as a you know a breakthrough a transmission of the disease and apparently uh, well, as, as and folks can listen to this podcast as, as well, uh, we did an interview with Dr. Stephen Hatfield, who's a world-renowned virologist. He said, look, it's the business of uh, viruses to mutate. That's what they do for a living. They mutate constantly. And so, you know, we're going to have COVID-19 in various forms for perhaps, you know, our lifetime or decades, and it'll continue to mutate and mutate and mutate. And so the vaccine people are always kind of one cycle behind running to catch up. Um, nonetheless, you know, back to my example, somebody came to me, or I happened to talk to this person who had been fully vaccinated plus a booster who then contracted COVID. And they said, well, I'm quite certain that whatever I got was not as bad as it could have been. Well, there's a lot of, <laughs> that is not scientifically provable, but uh, I respect their opinion. That's fine. I, I'm glad that they didn't have a bad case, and I'm glad that they feel good about the p decisions they've made. But what I tried to point out to them was, hey, look, this is different, and here's how it's different. When you were vaccinated for polio, about three to six months later, you didn't get a light case of polio. Uh, and that's what's different about this vaccine. And... Um, you know, you have knowledge and background and experience uh, in this area uh, based on your professional experience. Provide some context. I mean, are we off the mark by looking at it that way? You know, most of the, uh, the drugs and medical countermeasures that are approved by the FDA, uh, from the time that the research and development starts, it's usually 15 to 20 years of, of studies before these things get approved and uh, you know this these vaccines were approved in a year which is really unheard of and, and I think you're right you know people are asking a lot of questions about that we have uh, people that are worried about their children the government telling them you know you must get your children vaccinated well you know we don't know all the data that's uh, or all the data hasn't been released you know there's just not enough information available about how these vaccines may affect us or our children long term, and I think parents, you know, have a right to be uh, concerned about that, and individuals as well, uh, to be able to ask the government, uh, you know, questions about that. And I saw uh, before I came on where Judicial Watch had asked for some data from uh, the FDA concerning the Pfizer vaccine, and I think the response was, "Okay, we can get it all to you by the year 2075 or something like that." That just right goes to show you how they're, they're slow rolling it. And, you know, I had people that come to me and say, well, hey, you know, I, I showed them the news article and they said, well, if, if, if we're going to get the, all the data by 2075, then maybe I'll get my vaccine in the year 2075 if I'm not dead by then. Right, right. And that, and that is not, healthy skepticism is not, is not necessarily a bad thing. And uh, again, you know, this is a, this is a virus uh, that is very serious and it is deadly. I, I, I just like not being an anti-vaxxer. I'm not a virus denier either. I have a very healthy respect uh, for the virus, and I know that it is serious and it is deadly. And uh, 
I know people who have had family members who have become gravely ill and others that have died, so I take it very seriously. Uh, but, but I'm trying to provide, and this podcast is trying to provide, context and information so that people do not, I mean, really kind of flip out or go off the deep end over it. And the fact remains that somewhere between 98 and 99% of people who contract the disease recover fully. Uh, so it is not, people are not falling over dead on street corners from having suddenly contracted COVID-19. Um, and sometimes I think some of the language and some of the hysteria around it uh, sounds like that. There was a polling out of Rasmussen that I read where Democrats were asked questions about their opinion or their viewpoint on whether people who are not vaccinated uh, should be uh, confined or restricted in some way. And uh, some incredible number, like, you know, 59% said yes. Uh, then another question was asked and said, should people that question the efficacy of uh, the vaccines, should they be fined or imprisoned if they promote those questions or ideas, uh, either uh, via the media or social media, you know, Twitter, you know, Instagram, whatever. Uh, and something like 49% in this Rasmussen poll said the people who question, not, not, not deny, not condemn, but just people that question uh, should be either fined or imprisoned, which I found breathtaking. That's an astonishing number. Um, and, I, you know, this is, I think this shows really also that some of the friction and the social divides even within the country. Um, it points to a larger problem, a larger question, really. Uh, nonetheless, here we are. Um, we've got a vaccine that, or a vaccine that vaccines plural that are out there. We have people that have natural immunity. We have a 98 to 99 percent recovery rate. Uh, yet, we're still suffering a large number of deaths. Um, you know, uh, one of the impossible questions that was asked of various politicians and public health people is, well, how many deaths are acceptable? And of course, the answer to that, you can't put a number on that. No, it's not acceptable to say, oh, yeah, you know, if 100 people die, it's OK, or 1,000 people. That's an impossible rhetorical question. Uh, but, you know, again, it's a question of perspective. How many people are going to die in automobile accidents this year? You know, and if it's 60,000 people, does that mean you don't drive your car? You know, so I just think it's incredibly important as we look at this public health question and as we look at a virus that's going to mutate and mutate and mutate that we're going to have for perhaps decades. Um, where is the judgment? Where is the where is the uh, the sort of calm, rational approach to this? Uh, I was in a supermarket in Northern Virginia just before Christmas, and there were people involved in a shouting match in the uh, in the aisles of the supermarket over mask wearing. Um, anyway, I just, I, Chris, I'd appreciate your perspective on on where do we find some balance in this? How do we, how do we get to a a sane, rational approach? I mean, I can tell you a, a personal story with uh, with my sister who. Uh, who contracted COVID, she was not vaccinated. And, you know, people said, well, you know, if she'd have been vaccinated, then 
She wouldn't have been in the situation that she was in. She wound up going on a, on a ventilator, being very, very sick. Um, before that, she's very, health, very healthy, worked at the sh uh, Sheriff's Department uh, in her early 40s. Uh, well, come to find out, once she came off the ventilator and woke up, she had stage four cancer. So her system was already compromised. It really didn't have a lot to do with being vaccinated or not vaccinated. She had stage four cancer and, and did not know that and and contracted COVID. And that's how she found out that she had stage four. So she already four had this weakened, compromised condition that made her more susceptible. And I think when you talk about the recovery rate being 98 or 99 percent, you know, a lot of those people that are passing away are passing away because they have a compromised immune system from diabetes, obesity, cancer, whatever the case may be. Some people may not even know that they have those conditions. So Chris, when it comes to the work of Judicial Watch, you mentioned earlier that uh, we had filed the Freedom of Information Act or FOIA requests with the FDA uh, concerning Pfizer. Uh, We've done a bunch of work like that. Maybe you could just kind of briefly talk about or sketch some of the other questions, some of the areas we're looking at. As far as the FOIA request? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the other things that we're looking at is still, uh, you know, how this virus came to be about. I mean, there's still questions out there, uh, you know, about the NIH's involvement with the lab in Wuhan, China. Uh, there's been some investigations uh, out there. There's, there's been some people on those investigations that really had a conflict of interest uh, in the entire thing. Uh, there's been some things that's been published by the intelligence community that's been made public. Uh, but I just saw the other day there's talk about, um, uh, I think, the Senate uh, asking for another investigation into what actually happened because I, I don't think we've yet gotten to the bottom of how this all came about. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of tippy-toeing around, frankly, about, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a Wuhan virus, but somehow we don't, we, we can't actually say that it started in Wuhan or that it's, the source was China. Somehow that's, that's forbidden, you know, even though the Chinese themselves talk about the outbreak there. If we say it out loud, well, you know, uh, as most things in the United States now, any disagreement of any kind, uh, obviously you're a racist. I mean, that, that's kind of the go-to claim. But I, I don't think it's extraordinary or unrealistic to point to the actual geographical uh, location of the uh, kind of the kickoff point uh, for folks on the Hill. And so when you say to yourself, well, who has the most benefit of the gain in this? Um, you know, the, the, whether it's Pfizer, Merck, Moderna, you know, pick your favorite pharmaceutical company, they are all carefully watching and keeping score on every single politician who comes out and says something positive or negative, or those that remain silent. And somewhere down the road, uh, someone will be reminded of what they did or didn't do. And that kind of leverage will be used uh, to support or not support various candidates. That's just the way business is done in Washington, D.C. And uh, you know, that, is, that doesn't get a lot of scrutiny or doesn't get as much scrutiny as it, as it should, perhaps. Um, but that, truthfully, is how business is conducted here. And so folks shouldn't be surprised 
uh, when the the huge dollars that are involved, and I, I can't even imagine. How, do you have a guesstimate? How much money? Pick a company. How much money are they raking in on these vaccines? And they basically have an unlimited supply of, of, of cash coming in. But do you have any dollar figures? Does anything come to mind? Uh, it's in the billions. Uh, I mean, I know the federal government, even if you look online, each of those companies, you know, a couple billion dollars to develop this vaccine. And some of these companies, like uh, some of the ones you mentioned, or one of the ones that you didn't mention was Novavax, which is just right up the street here. Very small, very small company, really never has put anything out there before, but the government handed them, you know, a couple billion dollars to to get yet another COVID vaccine, which, you know, here in the United States, we haven't seen yet. I mean, we have uh, three that are approved, uh, but we have other ones out there that, you know, received a lot of money from uh, from the government. I understand uh, some of those are, are approved overseas, like AstraZeneca, I think, uh, the government handed them you know, a lot of money. Uh, Novavax was handed a lot of money. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, those are, they haven't been approved here in the U.S., but we're talking billions of dollars. And even Moderna was a very small company from, from everything that I've seen uh, in the beginning, and, and they, they grew very rapidly. Same thing with Novavax up the street uh, here in Maryland. I mean, they also uh, received so much money that, uh, that that they really had to expand the operations, their staff, their production. They had to do lots of different things, but you know they had the government money to to ramp that up. And they're really not uh, subject uh, liability-wise, like any other corporation would be. There's actually a separate vaccine court that handles any sorts of claims brought against. Uh, pharmaceutical firms. Uh, do you know much about this vaccine court? I don't know much about that at all. I have read about it. I haven't really looked into it, but you are correct. There's, uh, there, It's a totally separate system that, uh, that's yeah. out there. Yeah, there's a separate system of justice for people who have had adverse effects or reactions from vaccines. And I think as of my last research, which is a couple of weeks old now, I think they've, they've had something like 5,600 claims brought in the vaccine court concerning adverse reactions or adverse effects uh, from COVID vaccinations. And so uh, even those, I believe, are, uh, you know, sort of under seal or in some way protected. There are not, it is not broadly disclosed the settlement amounts or the exact nature of each of the claims that are brought but that's certainly something I think that bears additional scrutiny. And uh, Judicial Watch supporters and listeners to this podcast can rest assured that uh, that is another one of the items that, uh, that we are looking at and that we will report upon. Um, you know, we, we have something like, just to give you an idea of the scope or scale of the work that we do here. So we have something like eight to 9,000. I don't have an exact count, but between eight and 9,000 uh, Freedom of Information Act requests that are in our database that are currently kind of churning through the system. Uh, and that's at the, at, the, at the federal and state level because we file these open rec- records requests not just with federal agencies and departments, but we also do it at the state level around the country and sometimes even at the county or local level depending, depending upon what the, what the issue is. So if it's some 
you know, crazed Loudoun County, Virginia school board uh, character trying to cover up something, which of course has been in the news in the last couple of months. Well, then we have to file in Loudoun County, Virginia under the Virginia Freedom of Information Law, and that's distinctly different than the federal one. But of course, we also do a ton of work in the federal arena. Uh, and so we have thousands of these cases that we've, we make these requests on and they're managed in a database. And then of the thousands of requests, you know, some are answered right away. And I always joke that, you know, if we ask a question about something that the government's very proud of, some big success, well, then we get a turnaround and a response, you know, in about 20 minutes. I don't mean that literally, but they're, they're very fast to, you know, show us how brilliant they are. Um, but when we ask a really annoying question about something that they're, you know, they're frantically trying to hide, well, then, of course, sometimes it's months before we get an answer. Sometimes they don't answer at all. And in that case, uh, we litigate. And we have very fine, excellent attorneys here at Judicial Watch who take these requests that we make, and they go to court, and they sue. And, uh, you know, it's surprising. Once we get in front of a federal judge and uh, we brought this lawsuit, the judges usually don't have much patience for the agencies and departments because they say, look, Judicial Watch used the open records law. They asked you a very simple question. They'd like to have records on you know, subject A, B, or C. Why is it that you're not answering them? What, what, how is it so difficult? Go in your file, pull it open, put it on the copy machine, you know, make copies of whatever the correspondence is, and turn it over. How is this complex? And normally their government attorneys go through some song and dance complaint about how they don't have enough time, enough people, they don't have the resources, and they don't really understand what we're asking for, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this is a fight that we've been doing for a long time now, about 27 years. Yours truly has been doing it for almost 23 years here. And so we're, we're very adept. We're very experienced at doing that. And so we have something like 300 cases that we're litigating uh, out of the you know, thousands that we have requests on. Something happened just a couple of weeks ago uh, that I think you'll get a kick out of, which is... We got a, uh, an email from Special Operations Command from their FOIA office, the Freedom of Information Act office at SOCOM, and they said, you know, dear Mr. Farrell, um, we have this FOIA request that you made in 2005, and are you still interested in it? So I thought to myself, 2005, that's like 16, you know, so almost 17 years old. And, uh, and the FOIA request had to do with a, a classified data mining project that predates 9-11. And it had to do with something called Able Danger, which was a, a data mining project run by the Army uh, that purportedly identified four of the 9-11 hijackers before 9-11 ever happened. It was a very contentious issue. There were congressional hearings over it. Maybe some of you remember it. But we asked questions about Able Danger and a couple of other data mining projects the Special Operations Command was using for targeting bad guys, for terrorists. And uh, 16, almost 17 years later, they still had not accomplished what we asked them to do. And they said, are we still interested? And I can assure you that the answer back was, yes, we are still interested. And please continue to process this request. And so that, that gives you an idea of the kind of the, the struggle or the battle that we go through in trying to get these records and this information. And so... Uh, it's been, uh, it's been a long fight. It'll continue to be a long fight, and we're going to ask a lot more questions, I can assure you. 
Uh, and my colleague here, Chris Nelson, has mentioned a few things concerning COVID-19 and the vaccine and the mandate and the FDA and the approvals. And um, there's just a wealth of information and topics out there. Uh, we've been talking mostly about COVID-19 today, but I can assure you that there's any number of different subjects. Chris, what are some of the topics that you think are interesting that, uh, that you want to look at, that you're interested in pursuing, uh, that you think merit the public's attention, other corruption issues, different agencies or departments? Let me get a, let me get a couple of ideas from you of things that you're interested in pursuing. I'm interested in pursuing uh, the border. I think we talked about that. That's a hot topic. Uh, it's going to continue to be a, a hot topic as it seems like our border just remains open and uh, people are coming across uh, in the hundreds or thousands uh, daily, whatever the number is on any particular day. But uh, uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of issues with the border, I think, uh, as as we dig, we're going to find things that have been uh, covered up. Uh, that I can assure you. So that <laughs> cover up is is the standard technique of of our government uh, when it comes to anything, any of the corruption issues that come out. So that's uh, another very uh, interesting topic. I think when I first came on here, we we talked about what are the, the a couple of things that are interesting to you, and I immediately brought up, you know, the whole COVID thing is, is interesting to me, uh, in tracking it all the way back to the beginning, of course, uh, you know, the border topic. Uh, and I thought, you know, we learned our lesson back in the 2009 pandemic, you know, when the 2009 so-called pandemic hit, uh, the U.S. realized that uh, we didn't have any vaccines that were manufactured here in the United States. So we, we purchased everything overseas and we, we flew it here and we started distributing out. Uh, you know, I was, I was personally affected by that. I was on a flight coming back from, from Germany and a person fell ill on the airplane uh, on the way back. And, uh, and immediately, you know, they had a high fever. So, uh, you know, when we got, we had to make an emergency landing in, in, in Boston, and uh, I could see news crews and stuff out there, and, and the word had already gotten out that someone on an airplane, you know, had gotten a bird flu or whatever it was at the time. Right. And uh, so we landed in Boston, the medical people came on, they got the, the individual off of the airplane, came here to Dulles where we were met and given these little quarantine thing so uh, we were just told to walk through the airport I mean you know just like we normally do shoulder to shoulder with everyone but to go home and be with our family and not to leave our house for for 10 days so I spent 10 days you know sitting in my my house because of, of that incident and I guess my my point here is uh, the US government invested billions of dollars to get that manufacturing capability here in the United States after that uh, through a program that they had set up through Project BioShield, I think it was, but uh, there was Emergent BioSolutions, which was, was part of the whole COVID thing. Uh, it, you know, President Biden, uh, HHS completely terminated uh, the contract uh, with that facility, which they paid billions of dollars for because there was a debacle there between I think it was the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson vaccine where millions and millions of vials got contaminated 
for, for whatever reason that may be. Uh, there was a facility built in North Carolina. There was also a facility built uh, at Texas A&M uh, down in Texas that was supposed to be the the savor of the world for you know for the next pandemic that uh, that occurred. But if you look at it now, I mean the the, the facility in Baltimore is, is not being used any longer. To the best of my knowledge, the facility in North Carolina is not being used. The facility in Texas was, from what I read, was being ramped up to be used to do some of this. So. Uh, what had you know seemed to be a great plan for the next pandemic uh, kind of turned into the same old thing where you know we have Moderna and Pfizer and, and, and Novavax and everything and then they're outsourcing uh, you know fill finish operations or productions to some other some other company out there that's like I think I mentioned before, like Novavax uh, up in uh, up in Maryland, really didn't have any capability production capability on a large scale to do anything. So it all had to be farmed out to subcontractors. You know, things got to be retrofitted, spend a lot of money basically right. to to do what we thought we had already done. And so this Baltimore facility and a North Carolina facility and a Texas facility, these were supposed to be essentially national assets. National assets. U.S. government facilities for the domestic production of vaccines. Yes. And they are, I mean, flat on their back. Or they're just the, one in, the one in Baltimore, from, from everything that I read, uh, the, the, the contract uh, with them was completely terminated. Uh, I haven't seen anything in the news about the one in North Carolina being used for anything to do with COVID. Uh, now, the one in Texas, I believe, is, is, is being used. Uh, I can't remember. I think it may be Novavax uh, and maybe Johnson & Johnson that, that's actually using that particular yeah. uh, facility to, you know, to, to do actual COVID work. But uh, the other two, to the best of my knowledge and everything that I've read to date, neither one of those are, are being used. It sounds like walking, talking, fraud, waste, and abuse, right? If you're supposed to develop a domestic production capability for vaccines in the United States, and you have three institutions or facilities chartered to do that, and they're not doing it, you have to, what the hell is going on about tax money? Especially if it's supposed to be in reaction to the 2009 uh, outbreak, uh, and I think it's interesting. I, my recollection is back in 2009 when that happened, uh, the Obama administration waited till there was about 100,000 dead before they declared a medical emergency. And somehow that's been airbrushed out of history. So Obama-Biden let 100,000 Americans die, and uh, to my recollection, no emergency was declared until it got that bad. And then all of a sudden, everyone was running around with their hair on fire saying, oh my goodness, we have to do something. So there's a very interesting double standard yet again uh, between uh, Obama-Biden era decision-making and accountability and now sort of the Trump-Biden shift because now, of course, more people have died under President Biden's administration than Trump. And uh, Biden had very famously tweeted that, you know, if you have 200,000 people die on your watch, you can't be president. Well, 
that that criticism, I guess, doesn't apply to Mr. Biden with regard to his own presidency. I agree, and it uh, you know it, it sounded like uh, he was going to eradicate uh, you know the the COVID crisis by July of last year, and and, and here we are with with record numbers yeah. today, which uh, is, is surprising uh, at the statements that he made about President Trump that he shouldn't be president. Um, and yet here we are today that we can't sometimes get uh, uh, any comments out of Mr. Biden because a lot of times he seems to be hiding from the press. So, so now, based on what you just told me about those three facilities, uh, that sounds like a new uh, a new area of investigation for Judicial Watch because I want to know about how much money was sunk into those and what what they're doing if they're not doing covert work and. Uh, or maybe they are, but they're only doing it maybe half speed. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but it certainly merits further investigation. Uh, so speaking of further investigation, uh, I'll give you a little teaser for next week. Uh, on next week's podcast, we're going to take a long look at the uh, Michigan Wolverine Watchman case and uh, the FBI's involvement in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Whitmer, and we're going to ask the unpleasant question, was that a dry run or a dress rehearsal uh, for the FBI and whatever role they may have played in the January 6th incident on Capitol Hill? There's a lot of interesting questions tied up in these two cases, Um, and we'll have on Dan Silva, who is a reporter with the Epic Times in Washington, D.C. Dan is covering that case. He has a very interesting background as an investigative reporter. He's been watching it closely. And uh, so if you want to do a little read ahead, go look up the, the Wolverine Watchman case and the FBI and their what looks like an FBI hatched plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan. It's a very strange and twisted tale. Uh, and so we'll be reviewing that or going over that uh, in next week's podcast. Um, so, uh, Chris Nelson, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate your insights and your expertise. We'll come back and visit with you again, I'm sure, in the, in the coming weeks and get an update on other topics that we're looking at and investigating here at Judicial Watch. Uh, thank all of you for your time. If you're listening to this podcast Uh, on Spotify or one of the other uh, platforms for podcasts, please do subscribe. Please give us a a like and a review. It helps us get the word out. Uh, I'm Chris Farrell. Thank you for joining us on Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.